please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Um, as most of you know, we are in a sermon series on the Gospel of Luke. We have been for the last several years. And today we have arrived at verse, 20, verse 63, and we're going to be reading down through verse 71 of Luke chapter 22. So let me read those verses to you. Uh, they say, Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray, church. Um, Father God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you um, raised up faithful men who were dedicated to the preservation of uh, the testimony and the teachings concerning Jesus Christ. And I just pray, Lord, that as we examine your word this evening and we look at everything you endured on our behalf, I just pray that we would be stirred in our affections towards you, um, that we would be um, taken to a higher level of love and loyalty for you when we remember all that you sacrificed on our behalf, everything you uh, didn't deserve, you didn't need to endure, and yet you chose to enter into human history, become a human, and suffer tremendous torture, torment, disrespect, so that we could be exalted with you in heaven and with you and with all of our resurrected loved ones who confess your name. Yeah, Lord, I just pray that you would help us to remove any distractions from our minds, uh, help us to uh, just zero in and focus on this text this evening. And um, Lord, I just pray that it would be etched upon our hearts and upon our minds. We wouldn't just walk away, even though we have a wonderful time of fellowship awaiting us after this message. We wouldn't just walk away uh, looking to the time that we're going to spend or even the coming week, but that we would just be um, filled with more love and joy in our hearts. And that would be um, on, even on our lips as we fellowship together um, after this message. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Um, well, good evening. My name is Raymond. As most of you know, I'm one of the preachers here at Shorebreak, and uh, just honored once again to be able to stand in front of you and, and proclaim the Word of God, and really the love that Christ has shown for all of us. And... Um, you know, when I think about the topic of love, you know, that, this heart symbol that we all know today, which is sort of a, a bulb with two lobes and a, a pointy bottom, 
has been universally recognized as what's called the ideograph of love for centuries. And probably most of you do not know, its first known use in that way uh, is from a 1344 painting from Flemish artist Jehan de Gries called The Heart Offering. And in this painting, a woman is receiving a heart, this, this bulb with, with two lobes and a pointy bottom that we know is the heart symbol today. It's not anatomically correct, but that symbol is shown in this painting uh, where a woman is receiving a heart from her male pursuer. And now almost 700 years later, we see this symbol used in uh, emojis, uh, boxes of candy, greeting cards, even pillows to symbolize love. Uh, but for me, and I'm sure for most of you in this room, the greatest symbol of love is not this heart icon. The greatest symbol of love predates that icon by more than 1,300 years. For most of us here, the greatest symbol of love is the cross. And the cross always manages to invade my consciousness in profound ways at the most opportune time. Uh, in the first year or so after my mom died, uh, more than a decade ago, I had this reoccurring dream where I'm saying my last goodbyes to her all over again. Uh, I truly believe that the Lord again and again preempted what would have been a grief-filled ending to that dream uh, by instead showing me a vision of the cross. And so in those dreams, I was constantly reminded that Jesus defeated death through his death on the cross, making my mother's passing nothing more than a passage to everlasting life. And whenever I've taken sin in my life too lightly, God has brought godly grief into my heart, leading me to repentance by reminding me that he put his son on the cross to rescue me from sin and its destructive, condemning consequences. And whenever I have been guilty of pride, God has brought the cross to my mind to remind me that the most glorious and exalted person in the universe humbled himself to become a human just to die for others. So the cross has been the greatest source of joy, hope, and inspiration in my life. And it's the greatest symbol of love because a measure of love is how much the lover is willing to sacrifice for the one or ones he loves. Um, Jesus loves us so much that he was willing to hang naked and disgrace on an executioner's cross so that we can enjoy life forevermore in his presence. Now, I say all that uh, to start today's sermon to say that in no way is what I'm about to say in any way, shape, or form intended to diminish the importance of the cross. But while the suffering of Jesus culminates at the cross, it's not exclusive to the cross. In fact, it's not even appropriate to say that Jesus' suffering on the cross exclusively secured redemption for those who believe in him. Everything Jesus suffered throughout his life was important for our salvation and for our sanctification, including everything he suffered during the last week of his life that we call Passion Week. This has already been pointed out several times in Luke's Gospel. Uh, just for example, chapter 9, verse 22 says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders 
and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day rise. Um, speaking of his second coming in chapter 17, verses 24 and 25, uh, Jesus says, For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Um, in a somber coincidence, the Greek word for must sounds like our English word die. And that word means must, ought, necessary, behooves, needful, etc. In other words, the many things that Jesus suffered before the cross were integral, that is to say, needful and necessary components of his salvific work on our behalf. Um, we could talk a lot about Jesus' uh, suffering uh, shown in Luke 22 alone. There is a, a large record, a large catalog of that in this chapter that we have entered into. Um, verse 21, during his last meal with his disciples before being executed, Jesus says, quote, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. And of course, he's speaking of uh, Judas Iscariot, who would betray him to his captors. And sometimes we fail to think about how painful the realization must have been because we think of uh, the part of Jesus that's 100% God and we don't think about the component, the aspect of, of who he is that's 100% human. But you should think about it in terms of how you would have felt uh, during times or how you have felt in your life actually in times when you have been betrayed. How sad was it and how infuriating was it to experience disloyalty from someone you had every reason to expect faithfulness from. That's exactly how Jesus felt. John 13, 21 records this part of the Last Supper this way. Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. So Jesus was troubled by Judas's betrayal, even though he knew that God was going to use Judas's wickedness to accomplish eternal good. Um, but we've also seen that Jesus suffered emotionally because of the anticipation of the physical suffering he was about to endure. I think we talked about that last week. In verse 44, when Jesus was praying that if it was possible, he could avoid his execution, it says, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And Jesus also suffered humiliation because he chose to submit himself to arrest by corrupt authorities, even though he had the power to resist it, and he chose to go forward with his arrest. It didn't make it any less humiliating. When Jesus had finished praying that the Father would spare him physical suffering if possible, uh, he returned to his disciples several times and found them sleeping as he was praying. Uh, but this is the point. Matthew 26, 45 says, Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hand of, hands of sinners. And I think it is particularly vexing to Jesus that the only way God's rescue plan for humanity to be fulfilled was through 
uh, being persecuted by people who were beneath contempt. All of that was leading up to the suffering that Jesus experienced in today's text, uh, which takes place Friday morning of Passion Week um, after he had been arrested. And again, this suffering was just as necessary as the cross and in many ways mirrored the cross. So let's look at um, today's passage. Um, Verses 63 and 64 say, Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? The men who were beating Jesus in this scene were more than likely the Jerusalem temple police. Uh, They were responsible for maintaining order in and around the house of worship. And these were, of course, Jewish men, and only those from the tribe of Levi could be appointed as temple guards or temple police. Uh, These particular policemen had likely heard Jesus teach on uh, multiple occasions and even witnessed his miracles. And having been part of Jesus' audience, these these guards should have been convinced that Jesus is indeed the Christ, that is, uh, the Messiah. In fact, John's gospel records an earlier occasion in which the chief priest uh, sent these officers to arrest Jesus, and they failed to do so. John 7, 45 through 47 says, The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Uh, So there was a time when these guards were overwhelmed by the profoundness of Jesus' teaching. But now we see the officers mocking Jesus, which to me suggests that at some point they made up their minds to suppress the truth of who he is. Here they are obviously convinced, or they've convinced themselves, uh, that Jesus is a fraud. If they believed that there was even a chance that Jesus was the long-awaited Christ, they would not be beating him and asking him to prophesy, who is it that struck you? Uh, they might be asking him a much more benign question like, how many fingers am I holding up? Can you see even though you're blindfolded? Uh, Instead, they were bold enough to commit police brutality against Jesus because they thought he was just a nobody. But I want you to note the fact that uh, Jesus is already experiencing here what he would go on to experience on the cross. It says that the men, again, likely police holding Jesus, were mocking him. Luke 23 records another instance of mocking by essentially police authorities, this time uh, Roman soldiers. Verses 36 and 37 of Luke 23 say, The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. In both instances, they were mocking him by invoking his true identity as a prophet, and as a king. In both instances, Jesus exercised restraint by not doing the very thing he was being challenged to do. In both instances, Jesus demonstrated a profound amount of mercy on those who were challenging him and provoking him. Well, 
Uh, just as people mocked Jesus and abused his body in the first century, so too do they mock the church, which is the body of Christ today. Because of the fact that we seek to uphold the teachings and the commands of Jesus, people accuse us of being antiquated, insensitive, and even unintelligent, especially because of our adherence to the ethical and moral teachings of Jesus. The world delights in every opportunity to mock Christ's church. and We are often tempted to respond to the world's hatred of us with hostility towards them. But how does Jesus command us to respond? In Luke 6, to 23, Jesus said, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. And we actually shouldn't be angry, therefore, when people hate us because of our loyalty to Jesus. We should rejoice. The world's disdain is actually a sign that we are walking in Christian integrity. And if we repay evil for evil, our opponents will feel justified in hating us. If we love our enemies, they might see Christ in us and be drawn to repentance by the kindness that is on display through our gracious responses to them. Um, but regardless of the likelihood that our opponents will repent, uh, we are not called to defend ourselves when we are insulted for being Christians. We are called to endure ridicule. But Jesus didn't only endure their ironic mocking. Um, he also endured their direct insults. Verse 65 says, And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. Um, the Greek word translated here as blaspheming comes from the root word blasphemeo, which means to vilify, defame, speak evil of, etc. Uh, this is also something Jesus had experienced throughout his life. Of course, uh, notably, he was accused in Luke 11 of casting out demons by the power of Satan. But again, I want you to see here that uh, this experience is no different than what he would go on to experience on the cross. When he was on the cross in Luke 23:39, it says, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him. And the Greek word uh, translated as railed is eblasphemē. From the same root word we see here in Luke 22. So Jesus was blasphemed by law enforcers and lawbreakers alike. Now, another quick point of um, application. Um, often in our increasingly secular Western world, uh, people, um, especially those in the popular media, blaspheme Jesus, sometimes intentionally, and sometimes just carelessly, which in some ways is worse than doing it intentionally. Um, some popular recent examples include the app called Text with Jesus, launched in July, and this uses chat GPT technology uh, to text you in a way that it thinks that Jesus would respond to your texts. Some of the responses, actually, from this app are in direct conflict with the way Jesus would actually respond, especially when it comes to moral and ethical questions. 
Another example, two artists in Argentina used a Barbie doll this summer to depict a crucifixion scene. And these and much more vulgar examples of blasphemy rightly draw the outrage of Christians. Of course, if you love someone, you are going to be angered when they are mistreated and disrespected. Uh, we saw this last week when Peter cut off the ear of one of those in the group of people arresting Jesus. In our context, I don't think any of us here would necessarily be tempted to, to maim uh, someone who is blaspheming Jesus, but we might be tempted to slap those people and just simply tell them to keep Jesus' name out of their mouths. Uh, but when we feel intense anger against blasphemers, we need to remind ourselves that if God were to smite every blasphemer on the planet, every single person on the planet would be killed, including everyone in this room. And so even though it is quite natural to be angry with those who go out of their way to blaspheme Jesus, we should react with the same compassion uh, to blasphemers that our Lord Jesus himself had. And in Luke uh, 12.10, we see this. Jesus says, Everyone who speaks a word, of, a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. So anyone who is enlightened and drawn to repentance by the Holy Spirit can be forgiven, um, even if they've been guilty of intentionally blaspheming Jesus. This uh, is actually, of course, the testimony of the Apostle Paul. Paul said in 1 Timothy 1, verses 13 to 14, this is uh, Paul's testimony, quote, Formerly, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So instead of responding to blasphemy with vengeful thoughts and actions, let's respond by praying for blasphemers and calling them to repentance. Because, of course, they have not committed the unforgivable sin. Jesus allowed himself to be blasphemed so that he could make an atoning sacrifice for blasphemers. And Jesus, Jesus showed radical compassion against the men who blasphemed him in today's passage. And he suffered not only verbal abuse, but their physical abuse. To reiterate, we cannot only think of the cross when we think of the physical torment Jesus endured. And in this passage, the torment was also psychological. Because of the fact that Jesus was blindfolded, he didn't know when he would be hit, how hard he would be hit, how often he would be hit, or what he would be hit with. And I'm sure that the fact that these guards behaved uh, this way for the sheer enjoyment of it brought an added uh, sense of grief to Jesus and distress to Jesus' heart. He also suffered injustice, not just um, in his death, but in the process that led to his death. We see that uh, carried out by the Sanhedrin, Israel's Supreme Court, verses 66, and, uh, 66 through 71 say, When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered, uh, gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, 
and they led him away to their council. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. He's alluding to uh, a prophecy in Daniel chapter 7 of the Son of Man coming on the clouds with power. Verse 70, so they all said, are you the Son of God then? Which he clearly was saying he is by his reference to Daniel chapter 7. And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. There are many uh, injustices that Jesus suffered at the hands of the Sanhedrin, um, but for the sake of time, I just want to point out a few that he's suffering in this, this time frame of Friday morning before being crucified. And some of these are uh, obvious, but some of them maybe aren't so obvious from the text itself. Um, and all of these ways Jesus suffered injustice severely violated um, Israel's legal code of ethics, which is to say their jurisprudence. According to Jewish custom, a trial needed to be public for the sake of accountability, and that did not happen. Second, um, a defendant needed to be given the opportunity to bring witnesses um, in his or her own defense. Third, Jewish law dictated that multiple witnesses needed to, were, were needed to confirm a charge before a defendant could be considered guilty. Fourth, a defendant could not be condemned based on his own or her own testimony, even a confession of guilt. Fifth, there needed to be one day between uh, the day a guilty verdict was reached and the day that the punishment took place in case new evidence or new witnesses could, would come forward to exonerate or prove, uh, prove innocent the one uh, being uh, charged, the one on trial. All of these things were violated in Jesus' case. His trial was not public. Jesus wasn't given a defense. There were, there were not multiple witnesses confirming a single crime Jesus had committed. And Jesus was condemned and crucified on the same day and he was condemned based on his own testimony. And that testimony wasn't admission of criminal activity. It was admission of his deity and messianic identity. So the cross was unjust, disrespectful, and tormentous. But Jesus' experiences prior to the cross were also unjust, disrespectful, and tormentous. And God the Father didn't spare Jesus any of these tormentous realities. Um, and he let him bear the full weight of that grief and that physical, emotional, psychological burden. Uh, and again, just a point of application, just as Jesus was condemned for telling the truth about his identity, we can expect to be condemned for speaking the truth about Jesus's identity today. The Western world loves it when we portray Jesus as a great teacher 
uh, or a wonderful humanitarian or an awesome leader, a paradigm of great leadership. The world hates it when we proclaim Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of God. They hate it when we say that Jesus defines reality so that his pronouncements about what is good and what is evil are universally binding on all of us. They hate it when we say that apart from repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, every human is destined for eternal damnation. And so they will literally regard our confession that we hold these things to be true as evidence that we are worthy to be so-called canceled. They won't even bother to investigate whether our faith in Jesus is valid. They think that it is self-evidently true that Christianity is a cancelable offense. This is how we should expect to be treated um, by the world. And again, Jesus says that we should rejoice in their mistreatment. Uh, Now, I've been arguing that not only was Jesus' pre-crucifixion suffering brutal, but necessary. And to show that, I want to uh, briefly look at a passage from the book of Hebrews. It's a familiar passage in Hebrews chapter 5. And verses 7 through 9 of Hebrews 5 read, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Um, if you don't sin because of a lack of opportunity to sin, that doesn't really say anything about your godliness. If you have opportunities to sin but remain unwavering in your commitment To God, that says something about your godliness. Jesus was not perfect merely because he never sinned. He was perfect precisely because he had many opportunities to sin, yet he was so committed to righteousness, holiness, and the glory of his Father that he never did sin. And often sin provokes sin. We are tempted to sin as a response to having been sinned against. And so Jesus was sinned against over and over and over again and didn't respond and react um, in a sinful way. His uprightness in those circumstances allows him to atone for all of our failures. That's how he became the source of eternal salvation. If the only thing necessary for our salvation was Jesus' death, God would have allowed Jesus to die when Herod tried to kill Jesus when Jesus was a baby, uh, as is documented in Matthew chapter 2. Instead, Jesus' perfect life in a world that constantly invites and provokes sin is what made his death atoning. Those perfections were necessarily manifested through his obedient life that he lived in spite of the suffering his obedience brought upon him. So church, um, let us continue to be grateful to Jesus for being willing to suffer the agony of the cross so that we would be saved. 
But let's also remember that the suffering he endured was so much more than those three hours. When we say that Jesus laid down his life for us, it doesn't merely mean he died for us. It means he endured a lifetime of sorrow so that we could enter into his eternal joy. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you that um, you are so gracious and so merciful, even to those who tortured you, some of whom may be in heaven when we get there. We don't know. But you are also merciful and gracious and compassionate when, when we sin against you, when we have blasphemed you, when we have disregarded you even in our own lives. And uh, you have been, you have patiently, uh, you've, you've, you've bared patiently with our sin, waiting for us to come to repentance. And I just pray, Father, that again, we would be overjoyed because of our realization of that great love you've shown for us. And I pray that that love would lead us to deeper levels of loyalty toward you. I pray also, Lord, that when we think of those in our lives who are not Christians, including those who are intentionally antagonistic towards us and towards you, I pray that we would have a heart of compassion towards those people and that we would pray for their salvation and seek out opportunities to share the good news of your forgiveness through repentance and faith in you. Lord, I just pray that uh, we would... um, not look at all of the things that we suffer for being Christians from an earthly perspective, but we would look at them from an eternal perspective. We would look at them from the perspective of how our very suffering and persecution at times manifests your glory in us through our patient endurance, Lord. And I pray that our gentleness and our love towards our persecutors and opponents um, would be a such a testimony and such a profound example of your grace on display supernaturally that many would come to repentance through, um, in part through the example of our lives. Yeah, Lord, it is so difficult to see things from that eternal perspective, but bring us back to it again and again, repenting of instances um, where we've, Failed to represent you where well. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.